Amen. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus that you speak to us mightily by the power of your word and spirit. Thank you that the spirit gives life. The flesh profits nothing. But the words that you speak to us, they are spirit and they are life. And so speak to us those words that are spirit and life. We give you praise for it today in Jesus' precious, holy, mighty name. Amen and amen and amen. This is part three of our series, Devices, and we're going to be reading out of John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. We're going to talk about the church of Bethesda today, the church of Bethesda. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, as the youth go on to their youth service. God bless you. This is what it says. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind people, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. I want to talk to you this morning about the church of Bethesda. What we see at the pool of Bethesda here in John chapter 5 is a church. And let me tell you what a church is. The word church literally means assembly. And a church is literally an assembly or gathering of people that assembles around something specific, something in particular, and not just assembles around something specific, but they put all of their hopes in that thing that they assemble around. Whatever you gather around, whatever you assemble around and corporately set all of your hopes upon is your church. We call ourselves the church of Jesus Christ because we assemble around Jesus Christ and we set all of our hopes upon him. That's why we are the church of Jesus Christ. But the moment we set all of our hopes upon something other than Jesus himself, we cease to be the church of Jesus Christ and we become the church of that thing. If we set our hopes around a political agenda, we become the church of that political agenda. If we set our hopes on some social cause, we become the church of that social cause. 
But as long as we assemble around one thing and one thing only, Jesus Christ, then we remain the church of Jesus Christ. But this was the church of Bethesda. Because there was a multitude, the scripture said. A huge assembly. This was a huge church. This was a mega church. The church of Bethesda is a mega church. It's got a lot of members. And new people join the church every day. And a lot of folks have been a part of that church for years, even decades. They serve the church of Bethesda. They sign up for ministries in the church of Bethesda. They tithe to the church of Bethesda, and they're constantly inviting their friends to join the church of Bethesda. And, and, and there might be some of us in this room right now who are actually members of the church of Bethesda. And other, others of us may not be members. We just like to visit from time to time. We just like to glean a little bit from the church of Bethesda. Multitudes. This multitude had one thing in common. Everyone who joined the church of Bethesda had one thing in common. They were all broken in some way. Verse 3 says, they were a great multitude of sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed people. Sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed people, all of them were broken, and what were they doing? What was their activity? They were waiting. They were broken, and they were waiting. And what were they waiting for? They were waiting for the moving of the waters. They were broken, and they were waiting, which implies anticipation. They had an anticipation that if we just wait intently enough, something's going to happen. There's going to be a stirring. The waters are going to move. And if there's a stirring and the waters begin to move, then I can be made well. The problem was that this was a false hope. You see, all Bethesda was was a hot spring. It was hot air that came under the ground that caused the water to boil, caused the water to bubble up. And some evangelist convinced the people that the stirring of the water was the work of an angel. And that that angel only had the power to heal one person. And so you need to be the first one into the water and then you can get healed. The problem is there's no evidence that anyone ever got healed at Bethesda. They were gathered around a hope, but it was a false hope. The church of Bethesda was the church of false hope. And Jesus went to the church of Bethesda this day, not simply to heal a lame, broken, invalid of a man. He came to Rescue someone from the church of Bethesda to pull someone out of the church of false hope and into the church of true hope. We talk about Satan's devices. And each week we're exposing a different device. And the device of Satan that we're exposing and overcoming this week is called false hope. False hope. False hope is a device of Satan. It's a device that he uses to destroy your life. Remember that the enemy has a threefold agenda. First, to steal. 
then to kill, and then to destroy. But he uses devices because he can't steal from you directly. He can't kill you directly. And he cannot destroy you directly. He's got to use a device. But as we said in each of the previous two installments, that Satan's devices require a vice on the inside of us, something that corresponds to his devices. In other words, there must be preconditions on the inside of us. You see, Satan has no direct access to your life unless there are preconditions, open doors. His devices require our vices. And so the question is, what made this multitude vulnerable to the device of false hope? What made them vulnerable to the message that if you come and join this church, you can be healed? What caused them to be willing to set all of their hopes and dreams on this thing? What made them deceivable in this specific way? If we just look at the man that Jesus ministers to to here, at this pool, he's got two preconditions, two prerequisites that made him deceivable. Number one, he was isolated. He was alone. And number two, he was desperate. He desperately needed something to happen. And when you are isolated and alone, and you are desperate for something to happen in your life, you are vulnerable to the church of false hopes. You are vulnerable to be deceived. We talk about scams all the time. And what is a scam? A scam is when somebody gives you hope and then pulls the rug. When somebody says, I'm going to give you something, all you have to do is A, B, and C. Then you do A, B, and C. And instead of them giving you something, they take everything from you. The church of Bethesda was a scam. And what it took from the multitude gathered around it was the years of their lives. And this man had been at the, at the church of Bethesda for 38 years. Now, Jesus, in, at surface level, the way Jesus approaches this man seems very cruel, doesn't it? First, he asks him, do you want to get well? which seems like a dumb question. Nah, I'm just sitting here for 38 years for nothing. I don't actually want to walk or nothing. I am just, just came to the place where they promised me healing and sat here for 38 years for fun. I just like watching other people seek their healing. Of course I want to get, like that seems like a dumb question. Secondly, if my memory serves, this might be the only person that Jesus asked that question to. Jesus healed a lot of question, a lot of people, but he did not make it a habit to ask those people if they want to be healed. Yeah. He did ask a couple people, what do you want me to do for you? Yeah. But that's not the same thing as saying, do you want to get well? Yeah. Do you even want to get any better? That's what it sounds like. That's kind of the way you take it. And the question is, why did Jesus not simply initiate the healing? He could have just walked up to him and said, stand up and walk. The guy still would have been healed. Why does Jesus ask the question? There's three reasons why Jesus approaches this man by asking him a question. Three functions of the question. First function, to redirect his focus. The man has been focused on the pool 
Now that he's heard the voice of Jesus, even asking him a question, now his focus is on Jesus. In other words, now the healing has not transpired yet, but the man is talking to Jesus. Do you hear me? The situation hasn't changed, but the man is talking to Jesus. This is the first step. You don't know how powerful it is when you begin to talk to Jesus. Even if you don't know how to talk to Jesus very well, just the fact that you're talking to Jesus means that your focus has been redirected away from your problem towards Jesus. You say, I don't pray very well. It don't matter. Just talk to Jesus. I'm not getting any answers from him yet. It don't matter. Just talk to Jesus. The redirection of your focus away from your problem and towards the presence, the redirection of your focus away from your problem and towards the presence of Jesus is the first step towards your miracle. The first step towards your miracle, his focus on the pool has been broken by the presence of Jesus himself. Now he's talking to Jesus. So Jesus says, if I'm going to be able to do anything in your life first, I got to redirect your focus. The second function of the question was to expose his trauma. To expose his trauma. What does the man say? Jesus says, do you want to be made well? And the man replies, I have no one. I have no one to help me. Which indicates that the man has been abandoned. That his deepest problem is not the brokenness of his body, but the fact that he has been abandoned and left all alone. I have been left all alone. I have no one to help me. Now, I know I've preached on this passage before, and I've actually made fun of the man and said that he, he was making an excuse. Jesus asked him, do you want to be made well? And he cries, I have no one to help me. But I don't make fun of the man anymore because the more I think about it, all of us have that deep, painful experience that if I had what other people had, if I had the help that other people had, I could have the life that other people have. I didn't have somebody to help me get into college. I didn't have somebody to help me learn how to study. I didn't have somebody to help me understand what I needed to do at a certain age. And all of us can look at experiences in our lives in which somebody should have been there, but they weren't. I have no one to help me. He exposes his deep trauma that says all of this whole multitude at the pool of Bethesda were abandoned. It said that they were laid there at the pool every day. Somebody took them home or to a center or something at night, but in the morning they would just drop them off, lay them there, see you later, and leave. They were just left to lay there all of the days of their life. They were abandoned. He says, here's my trauma. I have no one. And Jesus is thinking, by the end of this interaction, you're going to have someone. (laughs) Because I haven't just come to heal you of your infirmity. I've come to heal you of the deepest trauma of your heart. I haven't simply come to rectify the brokenness of your body, but to remedy the brokenness of your heart. You're going to have somebody. I'm telling you today that by the end of this service, you're going to have somebody. You're not going to be in your place of isolation anymore where you say, I have nobody. Jesus says, you have somebody now. Amen. The third function is to activate his anticipation. To activate his anticipation. So first Jesus redirects his focus. Now he's not looking at the pool. Now he's looking at Jesus. Second thing Jesus does is expose his trauma. His problem is not just the brokenness of his body, but he's been abandoned and he's left alone. But now Jesus activates in the whole process 
he activates his anticipation. And the man is thinking, is he offering to help me into the pool? His anticipation has been activated. Wait a second. Do I want to be made? Yeah, but I have no one. Hey, I have no one to help me into the pool. Would you be the someone that helps me into the pool? Meaning his focus is on Jesus, but he's anticipating that Jesus is going to do something other for him than he actually intends to do. In other words, he is a part of the church of false hope, and now he's simply inviting Jesus to join him in that church. My hope is in the pool. Jesus, will you help me get in the pool? In other words, he believes that he knows exactly what God needs to do to help him in his current situation. See, God just exposed that more of you are a part of the church of Bethesda than you knew. Because you are a part of, you're a part of the church of Bethesda if you already know what God needs to do to help you. I know what God needs to do. He just needs to help me get this job. If I get this job, I'm going to be all right. So, Lord, would you help me get this job? I know what he needs to do. He needs to straighten out my wife. If he would just straighten out my wife, I'd be okay. So, Lord, will you help me into the pool? Will you straighten out my wife? I know what he needs to do. He needs to cancel my debt. Come on, can I get a witness? Uh, Cancel my debt, Lord. That's all I need him to do is cause my creditor to go out of business. That's all I need him to do. I'm calling on Jesus but I already know what he needs to do in order to bless me. I already know what he needs to do in order to free me. And and all I'm asking him to do is to do the thing that I've been waiting for him to do. Will you finally do it? This is what the disciples said to him, even on the Mount of Olives after his resurrection. He said, go to Jerusalem, wait in the upper room. You're going to be clothed with power from on high. They said, oh Lord, is it at that time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? No, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. This was their church of Bethesda. Even the disciples of Jesus were waiting at the pool of the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Jesus says, turn your eyes off the pool and on to me, off of the pool and onto the presence, the presence, the presence of Jesus. Listen, stop focusing on the job that you think God needs to give you. Stop focusing on the wife that you think God needs to give you. Stop focusing on the husband that you think God needs to give. Because listen, so many are a part of the church of false hopes and leave the church of Jesus because he does not honor those hopes. How many times have I seen somebody walk away from Christ because they didn't get a husband? Backslide. How many times have I seen somebody walk away from Christ because they didn't get a wife or they didn't get a job? How many people have I talked to who have said, I tried it, but it didn't work? What do you mean it didn't work? I tried the Christian faith, but it didn't work. I was still broke. No, getting a job is what remedies you from that. (laughs) 
My life didn't get any better. It didn't work. That's because you're focused on the pool, meaning he didn't help you into the pool. Take your eyes off of the pool and set your eyes on Jesus. And you know when you've joined the church of Jesus, when your hope is in Jesus and not something specific that you think he's going to do for you. There are many promises in scripture. We're promised healing in scripture. Did you know that? We're promised blessing in scripture. Did you know that? We're promised protection in scripture. We're promised divine guidance in scripture. We're promised divine favor in scripture. There's only one caveat that God reserves the right to determine the form that that healing and blessing and favor and guidance takes. Just because we're promised healing doesn't mean we're promised the kind of healing that I want, when I want it, and how I want it. That's the pool. And if you've come to the Christian faith because you have hope in a particular outcome, then you're a part of the church of that outcome, not a part of the church of Jesus. If you're a part of the church of Jesus, there's really only one outcome that we're gathered around, and that's the outcome of come, Lord Jesus. Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's the coming of the Lord that we are gathered around. That is our hope, that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. See, there's this thing that you need to understand. Every prayer for healing gets answered. Either immediately, eventually, or ultimately. Because in the kingdom of heaven, there is no sickness. You got healed. (laughs) Sometimes the way the Lord heals us is by taking us home. Come on, somebody. What happens in the church of Bethesda, the church of false hope, is that you get disillusioned. You become jaded. You become cynical. And suddenly you don't believe in anything anymore. Suddenly you stop believing that God even loves you or that God even hears you. And it's not because God failed you. It's because somebody invited you to join the church of false hope. And you were gathered around this thing that needed to happen to validate God's love for you and God's faithfulness for you. And when that thing didn't happen, your confidence in God broke. You thought you were a part of the church of Jesus, but you didn't realize that you were actually gathered around a false hope. And we sing songs like, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Christ is my firm foundation, the rock on which I stand. When everything around me, what's the word, Chinway? When everything around me is shaken. I've never been more glad. I put my hope in Jesus. What's next? He never let me down. Faithful, let Chinway say it. Too many people are talking. Faithful in every season. So why would he fail now? He won't. 
But when you're a part of the church of false hope, you believe he has. That's how you know you were a part of the church of false hope. If you can look at a situation in your life and feel like God failed you or God didn't hear you or God didn't respond to you or God made you a promise but didn't come through on that promise. You join the multitude at the pool of Bethesda and you're waiting for the stirring of the water. And even now at this moment, you can identify yourself as being in the, in the church of Bethesda if your hope is set on one thing that has to happen in your life. This has to happen, God. You got to do this. And it has to happen this way and in this time. God, I'm believing. I'm standing in faith for this to happen. This has to happen. Now, listen, I'm not saying that it's wrong to stand in faith for something to happen. I'm saying it's a trap to put all of your hope in that thing happening. You hear me? I'm not saying it's wrong to believe for something to happen. Believe with all of your might. Pray with all of your might. But your hope is not in that thing happening. You got to make that distinction. And this is the difficulty of the Christian life, of the life of faith. The life of faith means that I must stand and believe for God to do great and mighty things. But always in the back of my mind and heart, but I reserve the right. God reserves the right to do it differently than I'm praying. And if he decides to do it differently, blessed be the name of the Lord. This was the faith of the three Hebrew boys, wasn't it? Nebuchadnezzar says, why won't you bow down and worship my idol? He says, because we don't know. We don't do that. We don't don't worship nothing. We don't worship anyone but the Lord. He says, well, if you don't bow down, I'm going to throw you in the fiery. I know this is the, the, you know, new ghetto translator, the NGT. (laughs) Bow down or I'm going to throw you in the fire. They said, throw us in the fire. Listen to what they say. The Lord will deliver us from your fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, we still will not bow down and worship your, meaning we believe God's going to deliver us, but you know what? He may not. It's his choice. Our faith at the end of the day is not in an outcome, but in the giver of the outcomes, not in the blessing, but the blesser. So Jesus has now achieved these three objectives. Jesus has now redirected the focus of the man towards himself. Now the guy's talking to him. Secondly, he's exposed his deep trauma. The man is alone. Thirdly, he's activated his expectation. Something's about to happen. And so now, what does Jesus do? Now that he's got the man positioned perfectly, what does he do? More cruelty. Take up your bed and walk. He issues him a command that he is completely unable to perform. I need my organist. He issues a command. Listen, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said it best. He said, it is a cruel jest to say to a man with no boots that he must pull himself up by his own bootstraps. Well, it is even a crueler jest to say to a man who is paralyzed, take up your bed and walk. We don't often understand the fact 
that Jesus is issuing a command that the man is completely unable to comply with. But if you would take it a step deeper, you would understand that Jesus only gives commands that we are completely unable to comply with. If you read the, the, the New Testament and you look at all of the commands of Jesus, you're not reading them right if you think you can do it. Because if he gave you a command that you had power in yourself to obey, then you would be doing it by yourself and through your own power. He only gives commands that you have no power to obey. So when he said, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect, that's a command that you have no power to obey. So when he says, love one another as I have loved you, that might sound like something you have the power to obey, but read 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily provoked. It doesn't keep track of wrongs. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now when Jesus says, love one another, that's all you got to do is never fail. It's not possible. He only gives commands that are impossible. Matter of fact, he says it's so hard in one place, so hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to make it through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and some of the scholars said, well, you know, there was a gate in the ancient world called the eye of the needle. And in order to get through it, the camels had to get on their knees and crawl through it. So Jesus is not saying it's impossible. He's saying it's very hard. But they did a little historical research and discovered that that gate did not exist when Jesus said this. They created that gate later because Jesus said that. He was literally saying a literal needle meaning it's impossible. And the disciples understood this. That's why when Jesus said that, they responded, then Lord, who can be saved? And Jesus responds, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Come on, somebody. So Jesus looks at this man and says, take up your bed and walk which might have seemed cruel to the man, but Jesus might have said, you don't know who is telling you to take up your bed and walk. <laughs> See, you don't know that I'm the one who commanded light to be and it bead. You don't know that I'm the one who commands demons to flee and they fleed. You don't know that I'm the one who commands the blind to see and they seed. You don't know that I'm the one who commands the, the bound to be freed and they be freed. You don't know that I'm the one who told the sea to be still and it was still. You don't know that I'm the one who told the wind to be quiet and it was quiet. So when I say, take up your bed and walk, I'm not giving you a command. I'm also giving you a promise because in my word is the power to fulfill the command. Come on and give God a shout of praise in this place. Hallelujah. 
Yeah. Uh. See, that's what I'm talking about. When Jesus says, take up your bed and walk. Embedded in that command is the power to make you walk. When Jesus says, go and sin no more. Embedded in that command is the power to keep you from sinning. When Jesus says, oh, ye of little faith. Embedded in that word is the power to give you faith. When Jesus says, come and follow me. Embedded in that command is the power to leave whatever you need to leave to come and follow him. The most gracious thing Jesus could ever give you is a command. This man started this entire encounter with no one. Isolated and alone and desperate. But now that Jesus has given him a command, he's got someone. He's not alone. Amen. Amen. Come on, somebody. Listen, today God has come to pull you out of the church of false hopes. You've been sitting at your Bethesda for too long. Sitting there waiting for the stirring of the water. Some of you have just been focused on something that you think just has to happen in your life. I just need this. God knows that I just need this. God knows that I just need this. God knows. No, God knows that you just need him. Whatever that this is. I know it's a step of faith, but God's inviting you to take it today. And that step of faith is to make a decision. Lord, all I need is you. All I need is you. And I always think that I need something else. And at every place where I think I need something else, I've come to the church of Bethesda and I've visited far too many times. And you know the problem that at a certain point when you visit a church enough times, you're a de facto member. I haven't joined yet. Yeah, but you've been here every Sunday for the last seven years. You, You one of us. You one of us. And some of us have just been to the church of Bethesda again and again and again. And we've listened to all the sermons. Memorized some of the messages. The preacher at the church of Bethesda is like a snake oil salesman. So just pay me this much money and I'll make sure you get this. Just go through my process and take my online course. It only costs seven hundred and eighty six dollars and I promise you this outcome we even try to make the church of Jesus Christ into that kind of church come to Jesus he'll heal you of all of your sicknesses and he'll take away all of your pain and all of your sorrow Mm -mm, that's not his promise his promise is not to protect you from all pain he says when you walk through the waters I will be with you he says when you walk through the rivers They will not overflow you. And he says, when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. For I am the Lord your God. And he says to his disciples, I will not leave you orphan, but I'll come to you. They say, well, how will you come to us? I'll send the spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit of God. And he's going to guide you into all truth. And he's going to take what is mine and declare it to you. See, I have much more to say to you, but you can't take it right now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he's going to tell you everything that I have to say to you. 
he promises the Holy Spirit. And then he says to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, he says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that I've commanded you. But then he says, behold, I am with you. This is my promise. I am with you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's his promise. That's his promise that in every trial, I will be with you. That in every difficulty, I will be with you. That you'll never be alone. That you'll never be able to say as the man at the pool of Bethesda, I have no one. I have no one. No, 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 no. You're going to walk through many trials, many tribulations, many tests, and there'll be many pain, but there many much pain, but no torment. Because the devices of the enemy are designed to pull you out of pain and drag you into the place of torment. You see, wherever there's pain, the enemy is always there to transform your pain into torment. If you lose a loved one, you're supposed to experience pain. It's called grief. But the enemy's there to drag you from grief into torment, into the place where you feel like you can't go on, where your life is empty now, where your life no longer has any meaning because you lost. See, that's the torment of the enemy. You're supposed to grieve. The church of Bethesda says, come to us and you won't experience grief. Just wait at the waters. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're going to experience all of the pain and all of the grief that any human being experiences. But the difference is you'll never be able to say, I have no one. I have no one to help me. But instead, you'll be able to say with David, you, O Lord, are my help. You, O Lord, are my help. I'm not alone. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why? Because I've got no pain. No, i got lots of pain, but he's with me in it. Some of you have been deceived into thinking that your pain is a sign that God has abandoned you. Some of you have been deceived into thinking that if, if I was really walking with the Lord, I wouldn't have this pain. That your pain is a sign of the lack of faith. But the scripture says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The purpose of this message is not to pull you out of your pain, but to redirect your attention. To redirect your attention to Jesus of Nazareth to Jesus of Nazareth, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Listen, if you simply set your eyes on Jesus, if you simply become aware of the presence of Jesus with you in the midst of it, and here's the beautiful thing. He's got miracles waiting for you that would shock you out of your socks. C.S. Lewis talked about the surprising work of God. You see, the fact that I let go of the church of false hope, when I stopped pointing to this thing and said, Lord, you just got to do this thing for me or else you don't love me. When I simply lift my eyes above my Bethesda, turn away from my pool and say, Lord, I will no longer put you to the test 
by requiring you to do this for me in order to affirm the fact that you love me. Because that's really what it's about. It's putting God to the test. God, if you love me, you'll do this for me. And Jesus simply lifts up his nail-scarred hands and says, no, because I love you, I did this for you. Let that go. See, some of you have been hesitating, and even in the online campus under the sound of my voice, even individuals listening to this podcast, you've hesitated to come to Christ because you spent so long in the pool of Bethesda and your false hopes were dashed. And so when somebody preaches the gospel of Jesus to you, you can't hear it because you've been too disappointed by what hasn't happened in your life or by what happened in your life that shouldn't have happened in your life. May I say to you that God is not the one who threw you into the fiery furnace. Whatever trauma has happened in your life, God is not the author of that trauma, but he is the solution to it. His presence is the solution to it. So just redirect your focus and start talking to Jesus. That's all. Just start talking to Jesus. And when you talk to him, tell him about all of your deepest trauma. And then let him activate your anticipation. Lord, I know you're going to do something for me. I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, is better than what I thought. So I trust you to be the one who determines the blessings that you will release into my life at the time that you have determined. And in the process, I will continue to declare God is so good. God is so good. God is so, see, that's the truth that the enemy's trying to disconnect you from. That's the truth that the enemy's trying to separate you from. He's not good because he let this happen in my life. He's not good because he won't give me this thing. That's how you know that you've been at the church of Bethesda. When the truth of God's goodness has been challenged in your life. But when you can stand like Job stood and say, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And say, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I will stand with him on that day. I'm not going to question him. I'm not going to question his love. Remember early on in our marriage, Sonny used to say to me all the time, you don't love me. And the Lord dealt with her on that, and she said to me, early, just the first few years, she said, the Lord told me never to question your love again. And you know what? She never did. Never said that to me again. And I said, praise God. (laughs) Took me years to realize, but I questioned her love. Oh, snap. It's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And so I made a decision. I'll never question her love again. This last week I was talking to Bishop Daniels. And I said, you know, I'm just sometimes just so amazed by how much my wife loves me. And he said, Benjamin, stop right there before you even tell me why. Do you realize how much you've grown? He said, because you know how many years you would say, she don't love me. You would call me and cry and say, she don't love me. She don't respect me. 
And now you're like, I can't imagine, I can't fathom how much she loves me. And all it was was a decision. I'm not going to question her love anymore. And when I made the decision, guess what happened? My eyes were open to see the reality that she's always loved me. How much greater is the love of our God for you? You just need to make a decision. I will no longer question his love. You will settle it in your heart today that God loves you. That he's got your best interest in mind. That his plans for you are good. And you can trust him. Father, I thank you today for your Holy Spirit that we just sense moving all over this atmosphere today. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Come back, worship team. Thank you, Lord. Just begin to talk to them. Coming out of the, the church of Bethesda today, you're coming out of that church of false hope right now. You're coming back to the church of Jesus Christ. Whatever you set your hope on, your hope is now shifting to Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, hallelujah. That's right, get free today, get free. Get free. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord.